Psychomedy is brought to you by ThreadUp, Manchester-based therapy that supports creativity. I'm Rafaela Nunes, the founder of ThreadUp and the counsellor supporting the creative community. Comedians and creatives in general can experience anxiety, depression, low moods, and this in turn can affect their creativity. One-to-one counselling can facilitate a safe space for creatives to explore any difficulties, to gain self-awareness, to develop strategies that work, and ultimately to create choices that are aligned with the natural creative flow. If you're in need of support, then please get in touch. Visit threadup.co.uk to book your counselling sessions at reduced rates when you quote Psychomedy. Psychomedy. I'm your host, Nathan Cassidy, Bachelor of Science in Psychology, a first from Bristol University, a subject I've been studying for 25 years, almost as long as I've been trying to make it big in comedy. And a quarter of a century of studying the fascinating way our minds work on and off stage has led me to this podcast discussing the psychology of stand-up comedy. We launched Psychomedy this summer with the aim to delve deep inside the minds of some of the best-loved stand-up comedians in the country. How do they cope with this sometimes impossible job? The judgment, the loneliness, the highs, the lows, the heckles, the reviews... How do they keep their minds on the job? And can they possibly keep their minds healthy? We've had an amazing lineup of comedians already. Comedians that have been on our TVs for years and the best of the live circuit. Marcus Brigstock, Stephen Bailey, Shazzy Mirza, Trevor Locke, Callie Beaton. So many wonderful conversations with comedians laying out on my sofa and really opening up about the psychology of being a professional comedian. And in every interview, without exception, we have had a bombshell moment. That unexpected and sometimes jaw-dropping moment. When even though I know the person and know the job, it's got me going, wow. So as it's Christmas and a time for surprises, I thought I'd gather all of these moments into this, the Psychomedy Christmas Bombshell Special. It's been lovely listening back on all the great conversations so far, so let's kick off with one of my favourite comedians and interviews, the brilliant Anavab Pal. Anavab is a rising star of the emerging comedy scene in India. He plays to international audiences, has been on various TV programmes in this country like QI. He's living the dream and must be loving every minute of it, one would have thought. Everywhere I've seen you at, um, you have invariably just torn the roof off. You've been you know, incredible. You know, We heard the clip there. People love your stuff. However, when I see you come off stage uh, sometimes, <laughs> uh, maybe every time, you don't look completely happy with <laughs> with what you've done. I often look into your eyes and I say, "That was great, wasn't it?" And you and you you look at me and you go, "Ah, oh, mm, nah." <laughs> you, you don't seem happy. What's what's going on there in terms of when you come off stage? Well, that's a great question. And you know, I knew that at some point I'd be caught by an intelligent <laughs> observer, um, and we've. we've Kicked together quite a few times. Sometimes, like I know in Edinburgh, Nathan, you had some great shows and mm. you were kind enough to invite me to a couple of them and, and you would storm it and, and 
And these were big, these were hundreds, hundreds, 120, which is kind of big for Edinburgh, and it's uh, great reactions. Yeah, carry on. Yeah, exactly, and exactly. So, and you'd storm it, and then I'd have ten minutes, and I'd come and do the thing, and I'd look around, and I'm thinking, um, okay, Nathan's destroyed the room, the other person destroyed the room. I'm just going to ruin this evening now for everyone. And is then, that what you're thinking? Yeah, you're and, getting up. Yeah, and and I. I don't, I've never, I can never enjoy it. Like, I've never... Why do you think that, though? Why do you think that? I don't know. I've done maybe, uh, over the years now, about a thousand shows in all in 12 years. Oh. And I don't think I've enjoyed a single one. I mean, <laughs> the clip that you heard, I, that day, I think, maybe just not enjoying it helps me sort of... I know a broad structure of what I want to say. It never, ever goes according to plan. Like, something goes off. Like I remember, we were doing a a gig in Edinburgh in a in a cavern. Um, it was a very lovely evening. We were in I think the room was called Maggie's Chamber, mm. and and that night you were destroyed, etc. And then I had a plan to go up and do some slightly different things, and I did. Mm. And there was this couple in the corner, uh, the German couple, that started talking about something. Yeah, and I, I had remember. to address it mm. and say, you know, why are Germans always you know, invading other people's things. And mm. so then that became a bit. Now it was, it was, went fine. People laughed. But then I got off stage thinking, oh God, I got, <laughs> now why, where did this come from? Why did this? And then I just, I guess I, because I come from a writing background, I have to be more comfortable with the fact that real life will interfere in performance. Something will happen. Yeah. You know, um, but it's such a big statement, Anavab, to say you've played these thousands of shows. And you haven't enjoyed a single one. Not that's one. I mean, do you do you, do you not get any enjoyment from it? What before, during, and after? No, as in like you know, the the adrenaline at the end feels good, and and it feels good to get a new story out, you know, a new little bit out, mm. and get it to a shape where people laugh, you know. But I think about the mechanics so much. Yeah. That the the. The public adulation is of no interest to me. <laughs> the brilliant Anavad Pal there. And one of the things that I love about these podcasts is that while we're all doing the same job, just how different each comedian's psychology is. The fantastically funny Canadian comedian Kate Barron, for example, loves doing comedy, loves being on stage, and as I found out, loves comedy more than, well, anything. I'm confident in who I am. Yeah. I don't know, so maybe exploring that kind of stuff, but also... Doing it in a way that I don't, I don't know, yeah, and and how that plays into being really confident and really not needing, not needing a man. And I'm very fearful actually of getting into a relationship and pulling back on. I don't know a lot of comics who are in successful, happy, thriving relationships who also have successful, happy, thriving careers. Mm. And I don't know if those two things can can exist. Uh, can coexist mm. in a in a you know harmonious way, and I'm very fearful that I will pull my foot off the gas pedal if I meet someone. Yeah, and so that and that does happen. Yeah, it's totally, and that's the thing that I'm just like, am I prepared to? I've waited so long, and I'm competing with people who are so much younger than me for the same spots. Am I prepared right now when I have this momentum to give that up? And yeah. I don't think I am. So what you're saying there is you're fearing love. Yeah, I guess a little bit. Um, yeah, I, I think, I mean, I have a lot of love around me through friends and family and mm. I, you know, date and do that kind of thing. But mm. I very quickly, I, I've been told I'm, I'm too quick to dismiss, 
men because I just go, okay, I don't see it. You're, I'm not wasting my time. I'd rather be at a gig tonight. Mm. And I'd rather just go write jokes or be at a gig or something where I feel my time is more valuable. Uh, but I think, and I don't know. I don't know what would happen if it came along. If I found it, I don't know what I would do. I think it would, I would have a real crisis of conscience, I think. Yeah, it. if you'd love them too much, you'd want to run for the other reasons. Well, like, yeah. yeah, exactly, right? That's that's a hard thing to do. Could I be... I, I, yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of people fall into the people they're with and become... They take on a lot of, you know, the relationship and bring that into their sets. And that would alter my even my material and what I talk about and yeah. how I speak about it. So what would that mean? Bigger picture? All of that kind of stuff. Well, this is you saying, I'm a stand-up comedian. I'm not... Um... I'm not going to give in to love. I think stand-up comedy is more important than love. Is that right? Uh, no, I don't know if that's 100%. But it's uh, kind of what you were saying there. I mean, I don't know that I'm saying definitively it is more important. I'm saying... Right now? Is it right important? now it is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right now, yeah. Right now in my life, if, if I was choosing, I would choose stand-up. One of the most successful comedians in the UK over the past 20 years is Marcus Brigstock. I first met Marcus at university, uh, where he'd just come out of rehab, and even then he seemed destined for greatness. He's been in film, TV, radio and stand-up. But his biggest challenge came when he played the lead in the musical Barnum. The role took a toll on his private and professional life. Here's what he thought when he was offered the role. I thought... <laughs> I thought this is a, a brilliant challenge. Yeah. I thought, I don't think I can do this, but that was brief. And then I thought, try, yeah. just try, and that's it. And it, it, Barnum was a, a very interesting... Try as in, you, you kind of... Try to do it. Yeah, just, just do you try think to you do could it. do it at that moment? Did you think well, you had no doubts or...? Well, yeah, I mean, like, I'm, I'm not a very good singer. Yeah. No, I'm really not. I have my moments, you know, really brilliant. <laughs> moments but yep. but the but I'm not wholly in control of when they arrive and a good singer is um I walked over five kilometers on a tightrope from when the show opened to when it ended yeah which is a lot and most nights I fell off yeah uh, look I mean here's what happened with Barnum uh I wasn't ready when it opened I wasn't yep. ready on press night and yep. I didn't read the reviews but I know that the reviews were, if not terrible, that me as P.T. Barnum, that the reviews were terrible for that. And it was very hard mm. because, because, because here's what happened during rehearsals. I got up early to go for a singing lesson and then I arrived early, if I could, at rehearsals. And during the breaks, I grabbed the dance captain to go over the steps again. And in, during the next break, I grabbed the assistant musical director to go over the songs again. And when I wasn't on stage, which was rare, I was studying my lines. And I tried to stay vulnerable during rehearsals so that I could find new stuff. And when rehearsals ended at six or seven in the evening, I then went out to somewhere out beyond the Millennium Dome, like a sort of four, uh, 40 minutes on from there to do an hour or two hours of tightrope training every day for the month of rehearsals. Yeah. So I did hand on heart 
give it my all. Yeah. Probably tried harder at that than really anything else I've done. And I knew when we opened that I wasn't ready. I couldn't get across the wire for one thing. Mm. The songs were landing sometimes and not at other times. I felt great about my performance as a whole. Mm. And, you know, P.T. Barnum's an odd character. I mean, what have we got there? We've got a man who made a lot of money exhibiting people who we would now call uh, differently abled or disabled mm. uh, and live animals. <laughs> um, and in the musical, his loving wife, Charity, is rewarded for her constance where he's concerned and her steadying but kind hand with him running off to have an affair, mm. which is a thing I actually did. You know, I was married and I fell for someone in a production, had an affair and destroyed my marriage. So Barnum was a pretty emotional thing for me to mm. do and to have my ass handed to me in the way that I know I did without having read them mm. was really hard. And also gratitude, man. There wasn't a single performance I gave where I didn't feel fantastic just before I went on stage about the opportunity to try to tell a story about a man who set aside the animals and the, and the human freak show and all the rest of it. Mm. What did Barnum do? Pre-cinema, he brought light and wonder into people's lives. Naturally, reviews come up a lot in psychomedy. And I know from personal experience that a bad review can stay with you for a long time. And now with social media, it's not just a journalist who can stick the knife in, but ordinary punters. Matt Richardson faced a lot of that when he presented the X Factor spin-off show Extra Factor on ITV2. And how he dealt with the thousands of comments was another true bombshell moment. So presumably this was on Twitter and things like this. Twitter and Facebook and social media, yeah. which I'd have loved to have done stuff before social media. And I just so don't have you... it on, I just don't, have, I don't really use it anymore. So did they... What, for that reason or? Yeah, pretty much for that reason. Because then yeah. a few years later, I did stuff on Big Brother's Bit on the Side mm. and that audience did hate me. They really hated me. Um, but the booker really liked me, so I used to do it all the time. I mean, I just right. needed the money at the time. Like, like needed to do it like twice a week. Yeah. Um, and they hated me so much that like, um, I've only found this out in the last two weeks. My girlfriend, who I'm still with now, would go through and report really abusive comments so that I wouldn't see them before I, before I checked um, to sort of protect me because it used to bother me so much. Oh, and goodness. now I've kind of just grown to a point where, like my, I, I did um, Love Island After Sun on Sunday mm. and my mum called me and she went, oh God, yeah, people are really going for you. And I was like, well, I've not seen any of it, so I'm having quite a nice evening. <laughs> Goodness. So I've just finally gone, I just won't look, it's easier. Did you used to look, did you used to look yeah, I used at to all look, of them? I used to look at it all. Every single comment? Yeah. Oh, goodness. Yeah, it was pretty bad. How many, how many comments after a show? Sometimes, X Factor, um, X Factor sometimes they'd be like, it's uh, like a, a thousand or more. What? And you kind of go through and like, you oh know, they'd be God. half and half. Because the problem is as well, is it's people don't get in touch if they go, well, that was all right. Mm. They either get in touch if they hate it or if they love it. So you're not really getting a fair reading of anything. Because like, I'll sit and watch things and go, oh, I enjoyed that. But I don't ever get in touch with anyone to go, I really yeah. think this is brilliant. And so you're only getting the two extremes. You're of not course. getting any of the grey area in between. It's like a hotel review, isn't it? Yeah. So, 
No one gives it three stars. Um, Absolutely. Like, in, you know, it's like in Edinburgh, like, reviewers don't want to write a three-star review, really. Yeah. They either want to maul you or praise you. Yeah. So, I mean, God, I don't want to take you back there, but I'm going to just briefly, what, I mean, what kind of stuff was the harshest stuff that you were reading there? Um, so, I guess the worst thing, and I was like, oh, I was 22 at the time, so I was quite young, I was still living yeah. at home, and like... Um, people saying that, like, um, uh, they were. Pro- there was one that person who said they were pro-life, but the only abortion <laughs> they wished they'd uh, uh, they, oh, they wished for was that my mother had had one with me. Oh god! Um, or someone once got in touch. They really reeled me in. They went, "Excuse me, mate, how tall are you?" I went, oh, I'm about six foot tall, and they went, "That's about as much rope as you need to buy to go and fucking hang yourself." Then, and you're like, oh, my god. "Cool." I mean, all I'm doing is interviewing pop stars. Um, why are you so angry about this? So, so, so why, after the first couple of comments, why are you reading all the thousand of them? Well, because then, once you read bad ones, you're then looking for good ones right. to kind of go, all right, God, that's really nasty, so let me see if I can find something that will make me feel better. Yeah. But you'll know this um, from, like, you know, Edinburgh reviews or stand-up gigs. Like, mm. one bad one is the same as a million good ones. Yeah. Like, you could have... So many people come up to you after a gig and go, oh, that was amazing. I loved that. Mm. But if one person in the audience sits there and is clearly hating it, that's the only thing you're going to think about for the rest of the evening. And I think it was the same with that. And you end up just seeing more bad ones, which means you're looking for more good ones. Yeah. And it's a vicious cycle, I think. And then the great broadcaster and comedian Jake Yap recently told us how one scathing review for a show he had to rewrite at the last minute had a deep and lasting effect on his career and his life. I had to be so regimented. And I was doing this afternoon show that was so <laughs> cobbled together. And the only review I got, practically, the only reviews I got were for the free show, yeah. which was very much the B-roll <laughs> of <laughs> material. And I was sort of a bit unabashed about it. I'd sort of say to people, you know, come to the show tonight and you can see how wonderful this hour could have been. <laughs> And I got a That's review, a guy had very kindly like previewed me, I think in The Independent, yeah. saying it's like top 15 ones to watch in Edinburgh. <laughs> and then he came and reviewed it oh, no. and absolutely destroyed it. Yeah. And he said, and the, the phrase that just burned, and I had it as my Facebook little bio line for years. He said, he said something from, from the beginning, it's clear he's no stand up. Yeah. And that absolutely crucified me. And after reading that, I was just dead inside for the rest of the month. I mean, I can actually, I feel, (laughs) it's quite emotional. Like it it really cut. Yeah. And and it was just having to go on and do it two, three times a day. Yeah. After that. How long into the run did you get that review? Oh, I don't know, a couple of weeks, two or three weeks. Yeah. Do you remember where you were when you read it, when you saw it? I must have been in, in wherever I was staying in the flat. And right. I think, you know, I was doing that. But it's not like awful. a flashbulb memory of... You said, no, so... it was, I, I think like my parents were there. They were looking after me, valiantly flying in the rain. Right. And that felt horrible because I was like, why am I putting them through this? <laughs> Like, Could you turn to your parents for support, or did you turn to anyone oh, else for support? Oh in that yeah, I mean they were amazing. They were they were just amazing. Yeah. Um, but in a way, their belief in me just made it worse because you just thought, you don't do this. Like if I'm going down in flames, that's fine. But mm. I don't want to drag you with me because I love you. And 
it was, I think they'd seen it and they hadn't told me and they were hoping that I wouldn't find it. I know right. that my tech, a really brilliant, brilliant man called Richard Cray, who's a great comedy writer and performer in his own right, um, he'd seen it and they were all just sort of trying to protect me. But of course I just Googled it and found it. Yeah. And then it was just, Edinburgh was just ash in my mouth. So that it, moment made it, made it ash rather than the fact that you hadn't really got a show. It was that moment. It was moment, sort of it? okay. Like it wasn't, it wasn't catastrophic. You, know, you couldn't you hear wanted. the crickets chirping. It wasn't like yeah. horrific. I wasn't yeah. dying, but it just yeah. wasn't like the best show it could have been. Yeah. yeah. And I felt, oh, this guy's just categorically told me I failed. Yeah. And I just ran away, you know. I just thought, I'm, I, why, why would I do this? I just yeah. don't want to do this. I don't want to be here. I mean, I've been there. Yeah. You know, I've been there. At the same time in Edinburgh, I was there in 2010. Kate Copstick said something about me and, um, and I've been there. And it's, uh, it is a truly awful moment. So that's why I asked, do you remember? Because I always remember where I was right. when I first have a glimpse of those words that, as you say crucify you and however much you've done stand-up and i've been doing it for 72 years now wow. <laughs> you look good man yeah. the fear is but yeah when it happens again it's only happened once or twice thank god but when it happens it, you just can't control how much you, crucified is the is the word you just feel devastated even though you know it's only one person's opinion what hurt what hurt was that he was right Right. That's what hurt. He was absolutely right. Mm. And so that's, that was what stung. You know, I can take criticism um, and I can take abuse, God knows. But when it's accurate, <laughs> man, it hurts. And, and I just thought, I can only agree. Uh, and... And that was the thing, and I sort of wore it as a badge. You know, yeah, you say you for, put it on your years. you put it on your Facebook, as yeah. your, in your bio. Yeah, wasn't that crucifying yourself over and over again? I think I felt ashamed. You know, I felt deeply ashamed, and mm. I wanted. I sort of wore it as a kind of leper's bell. You know, it was a kind of. I wanted to warn people away and say that you know don't don't consume my stuff. It's not worth it. But r really. Absolutely. Because and I, I stopped doing stand-up. I did feel quite amazing. So and you're saying you put it on Facebook because you agreed with the review and yeah. wanted people to know you weren't good at stand-up. Yeah. Shazia Mirza was thrust into the limelight after 9-11, by her own admission, without the opportunity to learn her craft. She was booked on Have I Got News For You after doing only four or five gigs. She was the first female Muslim comedian on television so was she a victim of tokenism? Because you were on Have I Got News For You at that time, weren't you? Yeah, Just in... and I'd only done about five gigs. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's amazing, isn't it? In terms of thrust into the limelight. Yeah. How, how were you feeling then being on TV and mentally? Oh, me I hated mentally it. And... I hated it. I absolutely hated it. And I was getting the worst time of my life from critics, from comedians, mm. from people who felt that I didn't deserve to be there, which I didn't. But yeah. I didn't ask for it. I mean, I was still teaching at the time. I never had plans to be a comedian. I didn't know I was going to be a comedian. Yeah. I, um, 
I, it was just something I tried out. I was interested in comedy, and I tried it out, did some open spots, and then I ended up on TV. Yeah. And um, so I was I was watching you on. Have I got news for you? That clip uh, to remind myself. You were on with Boris Johnson. That was. Uh, I was. Yeah. So. I met him that night, and then I met him many times after that. It was weird. I just kept bumping into Boris Johnson <laughs> all the time, and um, I remember him being really funny that night. Yeah. He was really funny. How were you feeling that night, though? In your, in your mind, you've been so thrust nervous. into it after a few gigs. I remember I was being really nervous because I was on this desk with Ian Hislop and yeah. my knee kept hitting the desk because I was so nervous and I, was, and, I, I, and I didn't know how to sit still and I was kept going like this, moving my knee over my knee and hitting the desk. I was mm. so nervous. And uh, I didn't even know what I was doing. I didn't know why I was there or why I was asked to be there. Well, did I you ask didn't... yourself that in terms of... I mean, no. It must. I mean, I haven't watched the whole episode. I mean, was kind of your religion brought up, and the you know, in terms of nine eleven or that kind of thing. I mean, was that was, was it was nine eleven? Was that on your mind in terms of this is the reason I'm here? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew that. I mean, yeah. nine eleven. I mean, I didn't do it. You know, like I didn't have anything to do with it. I don't know who did it, uh, but I kept getting sure? radio where, where, stations where were you? ringing me up, going. You know, why did, why did they do this? Why do you think they did this? Do you know these people? Do you know any people like this? That's the quest, kind of questions I'd always And you'd only done a few gigs. I'd only done a few gigs. So there was just no one else in no. British entertainment no. who was a Muslim? There and... was no brown, visible woman. They were all locked up in their houses, not allowed out. Yes. I was the only one. And, um, Which is amazing, thinking back. I mean, just like you were the first. I know, and now there's... Nadia, Malala, there's two now, um, <laughs> and they're you know they're they're all acceptable, aren't they? Because they bake cakes and they're all smiley and happy. So the BBC have got one and they're running with it. She's on everything, isn't she? That's what the BBC do. That's what they did with me. You know, they took one person and they're like, oh, we've got one. You know, we've mm. got one. It's a proper one. She's got the headscarf on and everything. She looks the part. Mm. Um, let's run with this. Mm. And then later on, when I didn't wear the headscarf, I got accused of not being Muslim enough. <laughs> I thought, oh, I can't win this. Now, stand-ups are told all the time that they're brave. I'm not so sure. I don't see many of us fighting for our country. However, some view us as brave because we're standing in front of a group of strangers trying to make them laugh. It is pretty challenging at times, and every comedian experiences what some people think is the scariest bit, the heckle. One of the other great aspects of Psychomedy is we're usually playing clips from a comedian's set to get their reaction. We had a clip of Mark Cram dealing with a heckle which he felt he handled badly after telling the audience that he's bisexual. Mark's a great comedian, a bulletproof MC, and this conversation was so revealing about how one's personal life and struggles can affect what happens on stage. So we get to the opening of your set and you talk about being bisexual and then you mention your brother, as we talked about uh, is or was in the military, was a Marine. Now on this particular night, we've mentioned these shouty people at the back and you do get a heckle, a one word heckle. And if you wouldn't mind, we're gonna play it back for you now, if that's okay. It's like being on Fallon queuing up a clip, yeah. <laughs> uh, number two is that my brother is a Royal Marines commando. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was really a great time for a homophobic comment when the bisexual comments just come on about his brother who could kill you with his thumb. <laughs> so that gets a laugh, and um, but it's. I mean, what do you what, what do you feel listening back to that? What's your first reaction? You know what? 
I think this is what I didn't realize at the time because I was having a really shocking week personally. Okay. Uh, I, he, would you would you mind going into that in terms of how how what, you were feeling and well, I, I was having romantic troubles and I'm bipolar anyway, so just fucking up and down week. Right. Um, and you know when you're on antidepressants and you drink, you're effectively as Jim Jeffrey said, you're not on antidepressants. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I was just having a shocking week. I think what that guy said is not okay. Like you shouldn't use gay as a derogatory term, fucking anyway. Yeah. But um, he was. Playing off the old trope that the Navy and the Marines are gay was that whole thing. Which so he wasn't having a go at gay with people. He was indirectly, but and he um, knew that the moment he said it because I got confused. I thought he was <coughs> he was just doing a joke in terms of you said you're bisexual. He then waited for to say your brother's a Marine. I think that's what I thought at the time, mm. and I think in hindsight I don't think that was the case. But and but because I was I was in a very negative headspace, I just went at it negatively. Mm. And, uh, you know, there were other points in the gig where I, I sort of referenced back to him probably a few to too many times for my for my own good and for his. And he eventually walked out. But. Mm. Is that something you get a lot, that kind of homophobia from audiences? I, I can't imagine you do, but maybe you do. No. I mean, especially because like most, since I've moved to London, most of my gigs are in London. And, you know, mm. and it sounds cliche to so say you don't get a lot here. Mm. Um, I did a gig in Dudley when I was first starting. And this is not having a go at Dudley or the, or the Black Country, or <laughs> which anything is where like that. I'm from. Almost, but, but this is just this is just where the story happened. Mm. I was doing a gig in a pub for an awful promoter, because I don't think you'd actually ever seen my act before. And I just went on and did it. And then a guy in the front <laughs> row, when I told him I was uh, by, uh, got his ball sack out <laughs> and said, "Why don't you suck this then?" <laughs> Talking about homophobia, the wonderful Stephen Bailey was incredibly honest in such an insightful and funny conversation when discussing homophobia in comedy clubs. It is very... I, I remember gigging with you in uh, 2012 in quite a high-profile club. Again, we won't mention the name. And it was a gong show. And you, oh, that night, it was, only, it was the only gong show I've ever done, probably, no, definitely based on the experience of watching you do it. And we haven't really talked about this since. I don't know whether you even remember it, but it was in about 2012. I don't know whether you did many gong shows. I can't believe you did. But um, it was the only one I did. And you, the, the audience was so homophobic. They shouted some uh, incredibly homophobic things. It made me feel sick. and But we didn't really talk about it. And it kind of... It, at the time, it made me think, well, that was awful. But actually, I didn't, I haven't really processed it, maybe until I was starting to think about talking to you today, in terms of just how awful it was. And I don't know whether you, it sounds like a stupid question, but I don't know how, whether it really affected you badly, because it, thinking about it now, it, it's just, it was just horrible. I don't you know, know you, you even remember it. But. No, I know which exactly yeah. which one you mean. Okay. And um, do you know what it is? I have never experienced homophobia in my life mm. until I put myself on a stage. Mm. So since this industry. And so then when people are like, he just does jokes or he just does this, it's just that. And it's like, yeah, I have to go up, prove I'm good at my job, mm. smash it and keep smashing it. Because the minute you give him a beat, mm. that shit happens. Mm. And so, and do you know what sometimes I always like, oh God, I wish a producer could give that a go and see how they handled it. Because... Mm. Do you know, like, I know some female comedians say, like, you know, they have to go up on stage and prove themselves straight, or they feel like they're proving themselves. Mm. And it's like, just because I am a white man, I am a gay white man, mm. and I have to put up with that shit. And so sometimes that really bothers me. It's like, mm. yeah, the reason I have to be funny, regulate and keep going, a 
especially at a club, is mm. because if I bomb or if I have a gap where a joke doesn't work or anything, mm. that shit could happen. Mm. And that was London. That's everything. That was London. So imagine how vulnerable I feel in, like, I don't know, Coventry. <laughs> and you mentioned being uh, having a lot of friends from childhood and yeah. uh, or for a, you know a long term rather than comedy friends, are they the people that truly understand that then and care about you and support you? We talked about your parental support in terms of me as a comedian that night. I probably thought, oh, that was shit. See you later, Stephen. Yeah, you know, see you at the next one. Rather than actually sitting you down and going, Stephen, that I care about you. That was awful. And you know, whereas you, your real friends. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not saying we're not real friends, but you're long-term friends. Yeah, um, yeah I think they get it. Do you get it, that support? I'm very lucky because actually a lot of them will, especially when I'm on tour, so I'm actually on my own, yeah. a lot of them will come, mm. like, just to, like, be with me or to go out. And obviously it's a nice way for them to get to see me and have a catch-up as well. Mm. But they are good at, like, not letting me be anywhere on my own too much and it, it's not anything like don't get me wrong I'm not experienced this is not one of those things where it's like everyone's homophobic I experience it everywhere mm. it is very few times mm. I have experienced it but I have only experienced it since being a stand-up comedian and even the seemingly most level-headed well-balanced and successful comedian can have doubts I talk with the star of numerous tv shows including the imitation game big brothers big mouth and murder in successful the comedian impressionist Luke Kempner and at the end of the interview, Luke dropped in something very unexpected. I think, I think I probably come across more well balanced than I am. I, I I think that don't say that at the end of the interview. Yeah, right? no, no, exactly. Let's reveal your dark side. Right? And, uh, yeah, well, I, I, you know, look. Two weeks ago, I was sat on this couch, oh. saying to my wife that I think I want to give up. <laughs> you know, and she's going to me, "You're being ridiculous." All my mates are like you, utterly ridiculous. I'm like, "Nah, I think I've had my chance." You know, I had a show on, on uh, I did a show called Luke Kempner's Impression of 2015 that was on ITV and uh, it didn't go great. You know, I thought that was my, my own show, my big break. I was 26, happy days, here we go. But it wasn't that case. Hmm. And and I suddenly, two weeks ago, was going, oh, it's the end. And then in those two weeks, it's been really busy and it's been great. So so what happened to preempt that? What happened to cause that feeling? Well, Arsenal lost the Europa League final, <laughs> so that didn't help. And just, it had been a bit quiet. And the thing is, is that when it's quiet, you think no one's talking about me, no one cares, that's it, that's the end. Quiet as in TV opportunities? As in everything. Right, okay. As in everything. So, you know, and you just think, well, what can I do? And it's hard to get, and that's not a real, it's not a rational feeling. Mm. But being able to look at it and go, I'm not being rational right now is half the battle. Yeah. Um, so I'd say... That's where I think I do have an advantage is because I can look at the things and go, I'm not being rational right now. Yeah. Well, I don't know if everyone can. Um, and I think in the face of everyone else in the comedy industry, I think there's, you know, there are people that are very level-headed, but usually they work in improv and usually <laughs> help you a lot. Um, but there are a lot of comedians that are a bit awkward and all the rest of it, but that's fine as well. Yeah. Um, you you yeah. say at that moment where you had that feeling a couple of weeks ago that your wife said something to you is that something you think uh you can get out of those things alone or do you rely on your wife to a certain extent to get you out of those situations she can help she and she helps a lot um uh, but you have to do the work yourself you have to work on yourself mm. um and also if all you're doing is i think it's good to talk to people about how you're feeling but i think 
you know, we've all got lives, we've all got stuff we're not happy with. Um, so I think it's okay to talk about it, but I think eventually you've got to do the work on yourself. Mm. And I did that, you know, and I thought, well, I can concentrate on these opportunities and work towards those mm. um, and learn the stuff you should be grateful for. Mm. You know, I think doing gratitude about things is a very, very good way of making yourself feel more positive again. All of our guests have been fantastic, funny, interesting, beyond belief. But some you could do an entire series on. Eric Lampere is one of these comedians. So funny, so complex, addiction, therapy, divorce by 30. Here he is talking about anxiety and depression, the effects of hypnotherapy, and something awful he did that he'd never told anyone before. Anxiety and depression were, you know, a big part of my identity uh, and my thoughts and my behaviours. And so, you know, it was like being in an abusive relationship. I didn't want anxiety and depression, but I knew them. Yeah. They took care of me. And, uh, but I, I wanted to change because I was exhausted. I'm so, fuck, I was so exhausted of constantly thinking about everything all the fucking time. Never just appreciating a moment of like looking at a tree. If I looked up at a tree, yeah, but what about bills? And be careful not to be homeless again. Have you thought of killing yourself? Fucking hell, shut, shut up. <laughs> mm. So I did hypnotherapy and after eight weeks worth of, of treatment uh, and dealing with sort of three negative, well, not negative, I needed them to make me who I am today, but three really challenging moments in my life, uh, I came out of hypnotherapy a different person. Like I had a different voice in my head. One mm. that was supportive and kind. Morning. Ugh. Ugh. Who are you? Get out of my bed. <laughs> Morning. Have a lovely day. <laughs> it was creepy. It was creepy and disgusting and gross. And I hated it. Uh, and I said to my friend, he's a neuroscientist, my best mate, Jack. And I was like, uh, mate, I, uh, I feel good every day. It's freaking me out. And he's like, oh, okay. I was like, what do I do? <laughs> like, well, just isn't that the point of therapy to feel good? <laughs> Oh yeah. And so I embraced it. I embraced feeling good. And what happened was that just every single day I felt a little bit better. Mm. And I just couldn't believe that you could feel good. I couldn't believe it. Every day, feeling good. No, this is insane. <laughs> and so I was, I was genuinely just going, no way. Is this what life could feel like without anxiety and depression? I was so astounded by how good, good feels I was like, oh, well, I've got to make other people feel good. So all of a sudden, I went out of my way to make other people feel good. And, oh, isn't that nice to make other people feel good? I can't believe it. Like, who would have thought that being nice was lovely? <laughs> so I was, so that was going to my head. And while all of that was happening, I was also, you know, getting on with other things that were all of a sudden talking to me. Hmm, is this talking to me? Or is it because I've got such a fertile brain that I am able to be brainwashed by the things that I read and the things that are around me in my environment mm. and so it was quite interesting that like I was being overpowered by the sense of good and all of a sudden Eric was sort of a third person observing this new identity taking over yeah because at the start at the start of our conversation you you kept mentioning this uh, the issue was you were distant you were working mm. but I thought oh no the issues are far deeper than that and of course you've gone into them Oh, you've gone into those yeah, issues, yeah, yeah. and now now you seem like you've had this wonderful rebirth, and uh, what a chance of going back and 
maybe making amends for, for certain things. Or... Yeah, yeah, I'm trying to work out, like, I'm trying to work out some stuff that I'm ashamed of. Like, there was one thing. You know what? I've never said this out loud. So check this out for some honesty and vulnerability that I am nervous to share. Um, I kicked a hedgehog. I know it's such a simple, stupid thing, but I was 18, I was drunk, and I saw a hedgehog, I kicked it. And that has stayed with me forever. It's such a simple thing. But I remember as I did it, I was like, what am I doing? Mm. That is horrible. Yeah. And I did it, and it's only now I look back and I go, oh man, you were 18, you were drinking your pain away, you were in pain. Yeah. And you just, you were taking it out on the world around you. That's the beauty of the setup on Psychomedy, with us not looking at each other in the eye for the duration of the conversations. The guests can free their minds a little. They start to free associate more, and these things come out that they've never told a soul. Some comedians, it has to be said, are less sure about this setup. Some can't help looking. And then there was the brilliantly funny and lovely Callie Beaton, for example. She was comforted by the fact she could see my face and some of the reactions in a laptop screen. I was talking about the male-dominating environments in comedy and TV with Callie, who used to be a top TV exec before turning to stand-up. And she snuck something in which initially I thought I'd misheard. I think you mentioned just about five minutes ago that you went to an all-boys school. Is that right? Yeah. Did I mishear that? Okay. Yeah. Um, well, why? What? How did that happen? Uh, my, by mistake, my parents didn't know what gender I was. <laughs> and then, you know, no, my parents were teachers and that's where they taught. Right. right. So you're yeah. the only girl in an all-boys school? Uh, I was. And in the end... I think were... we got to the bottom of why you're a stand-up comedian, Kelly. Yeah, yeah, no, we have. We have. <laughs> well, there's many reasons. Uh, yeah. And then there were eight girls in the school by the time I left five years later. Because they'd had seven other daughters, or uh, yeah, they were all staff children. So as if it's not hard enough to be right. a staff child when you're literally like they, you might as well have a t-shirt saying, "Please pick on me." Why would? Why? Coupled with the fact, why I was, would a girl go to an all boys school just just because? I've just explained. It yeah, to you. but it's it was in the middle of the countryside. It was a okay. boarding school. There was no right. other school. Okay. So I was at a boys boarding school. Does that help <laughs> shed any light on anything? And I should also point out that I wasn't. Um, I wasn't a looker as a child, not that I know, maybe that's not the right way to describe a child. I'm describing myself, so I'm allowed to say it. Um, I was, I was... <laughs> Put up I, some photos on the computer, let's have a look. I was, uh, I was very, I was overweight, I was ginger, still am, mm. I had glasses, mm. uh, I had corrective footwear because there's something funny about my legs. Um, it wasn't, you know, that wasn't going to be... Uh, that was going to be a tough paper round wherever I'd gone to school, so it was particularly hard at a boys' school. Right. I can see in the laptop that you're smirking. <laughs> well, it's just it's just bingo. There it is. Stand-up comedian. You spent all those years at ITV when you were actually a comedian. For yeah, but years. interestingly, and this is, again, you're very welcome to come to one of my corporate talks sometime because they're zingers. Mm. But I, one of the things I talk about, that's how I start my talks, is that, you know, I'm standing up here supposedly to inspire you because I'm so successful. But actually, I tell that story only in a hilarious way. And then I say, you know, fast forward 30 years, there I was in an ITV boardroom, completely mm. not belonging yet again. Mm. And that's kind of the thesis of Invisible is I spent decades not belonging um, yeah. and, not, and not being noticed or being noticed for all the wrong reasons, like mm. at that school. So to be serious for a second, was it a hard time at school being in that environment? What do you reckon? <laughs> <laughs> you idiots. <laughs> And we have just one more clip to play for you today. 
and it's from an episode that we're releasing on January the 3rd, when we'll be back in your feed with your weekly dose of psychomedy. And to kick off the new year will be the truly phenomenal Edinburgh Comedy Award winner, Richard Gadd. A deeply affecting interview for me, and I'm sure everyone that listens. It's a remarkable conversation, and Richard has for me, as I said to him in the podcast, the most special Edinburgh Fringe story that there will ever be. Do you look back at that month and think that month in some ways has kept me here in this world, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Saved my life. Yeah. No doubt. That show saved my life. I'm loving this podcast. I hope you are too. Thank you so much for your support so far. Over 10,000 of you following us on Facebook and growing so fast every week. Thank you. If there are any creatives out there that are looking for someone to talk to, then uh, can I remind everyone, as we say at the top of each podcast, that Psychomedy is partnered with the brilliant counselling service ThreadUp, who give tremendous support for the creative community. So get in touch with them if you'd like to talk with someone at threadup.co.uk. And there are discounts on sessions if you mention that you've come to them via Psychomedy. So while we're off for Christmas, why not check out some of the episodes you might have missed? And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcast from. And please leave us a five-star review. It helps other people to find the show. Psychomedy was written and presented by me, Nathan Cassidy, and produced and edited by Mike Hansen for Pop People Productions. Music and production by Mike as well. Follow us on social media at Nathan Cassidy, at Pop People UK, and at Psychomedy Pod. See you on January 3rd. Merry Christmas and a very, very happy New Year.